get out your sermon outline. So you can follow along. It says a better endurance. Good to see everybody this morning. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, or look on in the sermon outline, or go there on your chosen device. But no matter how you read it, uh, read it carefully. Uh, read it seriously. This is the Word of God, and we should give it uh, great attention. Hebrews Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had uh, sort of written out a prayer for today, but there's a friend of mine who has just brought his church into the PCA, and uh, every Sunday he sends out a prayer to all the pastors that he knows. And I was struck by it this morning. He writes, and he says, it's one thing to come to Christ's church, to come to Christ's ministers, to come to Christ's ordinances. It is quite another to come to Christ himself. Happy is the man or woman who not only knows these things, but acts upon them. Father, through our simple sermons, may we present Christ himself. Make your people glad in his presence. Feed them, heal them, make them alive. This we pray confidently in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I came to this passage and it reminded me of when I was in junior high. I don't usually like to be reminded of when I was in junior high. Some of you may be able to relate to that. But during the summers in junior high, I would uh, go off to spend a week at basketball camp. It is true, I played basketball because of the height. So, but we would go and we would work on our playing skills and try to improve for the coming season. And often we would test ourselves against other players to see how we measured up. And I remembered one day, we were playing on one of the indoor courts and mostly goofing off, very casually trying to be cool, which is very hard to do when you're in junior high. And we noticed this guy come in to the gym to watch us. And we immediately recognized him as Kevin Lockery, at the time the star guard for the then Baltimore Bullets. 
long before they became the Washington Wizards. Well, the goofing off came to an immediate halt. All of a sudden, we were playing real basketball. And soon, some other really tall guys came in. They also played for the Bullets. And the level of basketball that we were playing just rose another notch. And everybody was hustling. And then another guy came in. And the pros moved out of the way to make room for him. And he was a really old guy. But everybody in the gym knew exactly who he was. And in my humble and absolutely correct opinion, he was the greatest coach who ever lived. And his name was John Wooden. And he coached the UCLA basketball team to 10 national championships in a 12-year period, including an unprecedented seven in a row. And now we were playing basketball at a level beyond anything we had ever played before. A few minutes earlier, we're taking our time and having fun. And now we're playing all out and running full speed. How come? Because now we had witnesses. And not just any witnesses, but guys who played in the pros. And not just the pros, but Coach Wooden was there. And every kid in the gym would have done anything to play for John Wooden. And no one wanted to slow down or get tripped up while those guys were watching. And so we played the best we had ever played. Well, that's not a whole lot different than what the writer uh, to the Hebrews is trying to tell the church here at the beginning of chapter 12. He tells us that we too have witnesses and that these witnesses should affect more than how we play, it should affect how we live. So the first thing we're told is to consider them. To consider them. That should be the first blank there. The beginning of first one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and it sort of sets the scene of being in a great coliseum. The occasion is this long-distance foot race. And the contestants include everyone in the room. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the stands are packed with the saints of old. He places them there not merely as spectators, but also as a cheering section. He tells us to pay close attention to their testimony, to listen for the encouragement they give us. The cloud of witnesses that fills the stadium are all the great spiritual athletes of the past all the Hall of Faith members that were mentioned in chapter 11. Spiritually, each one a gold medal winner of past races. And everywhere you look, there's this kind face encouraging you on. Keep going. You can do it. Look at us. We made it. You can too. But the text isn't just referring to them watching us. The use of the word witnesses here is more in the sense of a courtroom. Witnesses who testify about what they've experienced. And the point is not that they're looking at us, but that we're looking and listening to them. They witness to us what living by faith means and how it's worthwhile. And we look to them and we listen to them 
and we see the tremendous value of persevering faith. That's what they did. They all faced great difficulty, and they persevered, staying faithful to the end. And they call out to us, testifying that living by faith is worth it no matter what the cost. They remind us that Jesus is worth the wait. You just think of all those people that we read about in chapter 11. There's Abel reminding us of the true sacrifice we are to trust. There's Noah crying out that the world is condemned, but yet there is an ark of salvation. There's Abraham cheering for all who hope for promises yet unfulfilled, just the way he did for so many years in Canaan. Moses shouts out to those uh, who, like him, have to forfeit status and favor in the world in order to follow the Lord. Their presence gives us the home field advantage for our race, if only we will see them by faith and hear their shouts and their cries and their faithful testimony. Let me ask you, what's the purpose or goal of your life? Is it to attain a certain uh, standard of wealth, to arise to a position of influence and power, to be popular or to enjoy maximum leisure and fun? Because those are the ways that our unbelieving society defines success. But it's not how a Christian should think of his or her life. You see, those types of goals, money, wealth, power, influence, fun, those types of goals end up enslaving us because they can never be completely achieved. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, the first one, at the time, the richest man in the world. And they asked him, just how much money was enough? And Rockefeller looked at the man and said, just a little bit more. How liberating, then, it is for the Christian to realize that his or her true calling is to this race of faith in the living God to persevere in all the various settings that God has placed you. To hold fast your convictions and your obedience to God in different settings and seasons of life. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To glorify God by faith all the way to the end of your life. And that's the victory that they're talking about in Hebrews. Not the worldly standards of success, but this persevering, this enduring to the end by faith. And it's not easy. It's not an easy calling. And just as if we were athletes who were training hard, the writer of Hebrews gives us instructions and coaching. And we're told that you can't run an effective race if you're carrying a lot of baggage. And in the spiritual race that stands for your life, the baggage that slows us down and trips us up is called sin. So in order to run the race well, you have to consider yourself. That's your second point. Consider yourself. It says there at the end of verse 1, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All right, we said the book of Hebrews is written to people who are beaten down with difficulties, troubles, and suffering, so much so that they're ready to give up. 
So the book of Hebrews, therefore, is intense public pastoral counseling. And at every point, the writer of the Hebrews wants his readers to understand how to become the kind of people who can cope with the brutal realities of life. And so to a great degree, the climax of his argument is right here in this chapter. Becoming people who can handle trouble, who can handle the brutal realities of life, probably more necessary for us now than it ever was, even for those readers in those days. There's never been a culture with a lower pain threshold than ours. There's never been a culture where people scream louder, where they're so easily offended even when offense isn't intended. I was listening to the radio the other day, the sports radio, but they had a comedian on. And he was complaining that all of the top comedians have stopped going to colleges because people are so easily offended. They said it's just not worth it. And I thought, what an indictment that comedians won't even go out into the marketplace to colleges because comedians offend people. And they've just given up. And these aren't believers, but they won't go. We have a culture of people scream faster and are offended quicker. And part of the problem is we've never prepared for the difficulties the troubles, the suffering, those brutal realities of life. And this is incredibly important. Expectations are everything. A good deal of the pain that you experience when difficulties come isn't necessarily due to those difficulties. It's due to our shock, our confusion, our self-pity over the fact that it's happening to me. It doesn't bother me nearly as much when it happens to you. But now it's happening to me. That's so unfair. Half the pain isn't from the event. It's from our inability to process the event. And largely it's because of expectations. Now one of the things I've learned over the years, largely due to my family's proclivity for medical emergencies. It wasn't funny. Um, I mean, I tried to count up all the broken bones and the serious injuries and the surgeries we've had since we've been here, and I stopped at 20. But through all that, one of the things I've now learned, and they do this very well, is when you're waiting for your loved one to come out of surgery, they send out a surgical nurse first. They send out one of the nurses from the operating room to come talk to you first. They didn't used to do this, but they do it now. And the nurse comes out and says, let me get you ready for what you're going to see when you go see your loved one in the post-op room or in the intensive care unit. And then the nurse paints this horrible picture and says something to the effect that they're just going to look awful. They'll be pale, they'll be green, they'll be cold, they'll be white. When you touch them, they'll be cold, they'll be blood, they'll be sweat. There's tubes, their eyes will be rolling, they won't know who you are, and on and on and on and on it goes. They'll just look awful. And you're sitting there, okay, okay. But after being prepared like that, you walk in. 
And there's two things that happen now that you've uh, been prepared. You either say, well, pretty much like she said, or else you say, not so bad, not as bad as I thought. See, the old way, when you didn't have any nurse come in and they didn't prepare you, you didn't get the surgical nurse, nobody came in to adjust your expectations, they just say, you can go in. And you'd walk in and take one look at them and just faint. You know, oh my gosh, they're dead. They're gone, it's all over, it's hopeless. And it has everything to do with the preparation. Listen, can you look at your troubles in life like this? I'm not sure that by the time this sermon is over, you'll have all you need in order to do that. But you need to learn how to do that. So when those difficulties, crises come, you don't say, ah, oh, it's all over. It's hopeless. Because if you don't get prepared, you're going to grow weary and lose heart. That's what our text says. Let me put it another way. I'll make it uh, put a little more responsibility on you. Look back at that verse. It says, now we're told to lay aside every weight. One version says, throw off everything that hinders. What does that mean? Well, I think if you think about baseball, which I have done from time to time, you consider a batter in baseball. And uh, they show them on TV and they go to the on-deck circle and they're swinging a bat with what's called a donut. It's a weighted ring that they put on the bat. And uh, they practice with that weighted ring on the bat. And when you take it off, when that weighted ring is removed, it's designed to make the bat feel lighter and thus increase the hitter's bat speed. And that's what makes the ball go far and fast, is bat speed. It's not just having a bigger bat. It's how fast you can swing it. And the best hitters in baseball swing the bat so fast you can't really see it with the human eye. You can see it on TV because the camera's far away and they slow it down. But you can't really see it when you're right there because it's so fast. But, you know, no one ever comes to the plate with that weighted ring still on their bat. The ball player has laid aside the weight that might hinder his performance. Well, let's bring that to our spiritual life. What sort of weights hinder us in our spiritual life? We have to be careful here. Because not all hindrances are sinful. In fact, what's a hindrance to you may not be a hindrance to somebody else. A hindrance could be a good thing that's keeping you from the best thing. It could be a friendship, an association, a job, an event, a place, a habit, uh, an honor, an entertainment. Not necessarily a bad thing unless it's keeping you from what God wants for your life. But if this thing serves as a weight to slow down your Christian life, then the writer's telling you to toss it aside, to throw it off. So not only do we need to focus on the best things, but it also says we need to uh, avoid getting entangled in sin. Now this is referring to regular, repeated sins that have become a habit. What the uh, Puritans or the older translations would call, I love this phrase, a besetting sin. I think it's a great description. And again, it's not the same for everybody. For some, it could be a cynical spirit. 
For some, it could be jealousy and envy. For some, it could be a negative, critical tongue. But it's something that has come to describe us. She always has to be right. He's never satisfied. She always looks at what you have. He's stingy, etc., etc. You could make up your own things. But in the eyes of other people, usually without even thinking about it, your negative trait has become dominant. And so the negative thing in your life is used to describe you. And if that's the case, then that's the sin that's entangled you. And you need to throw it off. Think about that. What could that be for you? What negative trait describes you? What does it mean here when it says to run the race with the uh, run with endurance, the race that is set before us? Now, the word race uh, here, this description is the Greek word agon, from which we get our word agony. And if you've ever run, you understand. It makes total sense, right? True? Agony. He, he gets it. But you got to think, who has the race set out before them? We do. Us. All of us. Every one of us. It's not some poor slob over there who happens to have suffering as their lot in life. It's us. Life, according to this verse, is an agonizing struggle. And interest, interestingly enough, this phrase, race, this agonizing struggle, it can mean race, the way it's translated here. It can also mean a wrestling match. And it can be used to describe an athletic contest. Any test of physical endurance. And so the first thing we learn from this athletic metaphor is that the difficulties of life in many ways are absolutely necessary. Suffering is necessary. You'll be a shallow, immature person without it. And secondly, we learn something very important about suffering. It's paradoxical. It doesn't often make sense. It seems backwards. Let me explain. In the gym, when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what I mean? Some of you have been to the gym. You've lifted weights. When I'm doing bicep curls, not that I do, but if I did, if I did, I would do them with small refrigerators. Those of you who don't know, I snapped my bicep tin in last year lifting a refrigerator. But if I do bicep curls, I have to be careful. You know, I'm getting recording here, so it's all truth and advertising. But if I would do bicep curls, when I have done bicep curls, you know, in the past, what happens is you do them and you feel like you're getting weaker and weaker. Your biceps don't feel like they're getting stronger and stronger. You feel like they're getting weaker and weaker. With every curl, your arms feel more and more like spaghetti. The harder I work, the more pasta I feel. Guess what? The weaker you feel, the stronger you get. That's how exercise works. And if you learn how to run the race, according to Hebrews, if you learn endurance, if you learn humility, if you learn the things that we're looking at here, 
In other words, if you meet the troubles of life in the right way, if you're going through suffering, you'll feel like your faith is getting weaker. Your patience is getting weaker. Your courage is getting weaker. You won't feel like you're getting stronger, but you are. Very important. It's a very illuminating metaphor. Life is a race. The longer you go, the weaker you feel, but you're actually building your endurance and getting stronger. Life with its difficulties is an agonizing struggle, and yet there's a purpose to it. It's making you stronger spiritually. However, in order to throw off sin and to run with perseverance, you need a much more positive motivation. So the writer offers the best motivation of all. He says here in verses 2 to 3, consider him. Consider him. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You have to be focused. Let's take a moment uh, to see that. He says, looking to Jesus, some versions have it, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that's what he's saying. It's very easy to miss, but it's very fundamental. In this little phrase, looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus, he's saying how you handle your sufferings, how you handle your difficulties, whether you're sinking or keeping up, depends on what you're focused on. In fact, the Greek word here is kind of a negative word. Many people think it should be translated, look away to Jesus. And what the writer is telling you is you're sinking because of what you're looking at. Stop looking at that and look at this. Stop looking at that sinful thing. Look away from that and look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You're sinking because of what you fixed your mind on. In other words, what's captured your imagination? We can get very literal about this. Your imagination is what fills your mind with pictures. When you're going through some experience, what are you thinking about? What are you imagining? What are you looking at? You can say, yeah, I know that Jesus is God, and I know he suffered for me. And that's a very abstract way of thinking about it. But if in your mind you're spinning out these awful, tragic, horrible scenarios, you know, sort of you're spinning out a worst-case scenario in your imagination of what's going to happen, and what I would tell you is, you have Jesus on audio. But you have that worst case scenario, that future scenario on video. You have Jesus on audio, but the worst case scenario on video. And which one captures your imagination? Video. In other words, despite knowing what Jesus says... You fix your eyes and thus your mind, and you're dwelling on other things. And the writer of the Hebrews is very categorically saying, if you're sinking, if you're going under, if you're struggling, how you deal with those troubles is a function of what you fixed your mind on. And he makes this very dramatic statement. He says, if you look to Jesus, 
and his enduring, then you'll be able to endure. And if you're not enduring, then you're not considering his endurance. There it is. That's a principle. It's very much in your face. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look away to Jesus. What are you looking at? Look at him. If you're sinking, you're not doing this. That's the principle. You'll be able to deal with your troubles as long as you have your focus on Jesus. So how do you throw off hindrances? How do you lay aside those weights? How do you put aside sin? By considering Jesus. By seeing what he did for you. By seeing what he endured for you. By seeing what he suffered for you. And he was able to do this for the joy that was set before him. He saw the finish line. He knew the reward. He knew what would happen if he remained obedient to the will of God. So the writer says, look to Jesus. See what he did for you. Return to the gospel of God's grace. You were saved because you believe that Christ died for your sins. He paid the penalty for you so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. Live that way. What are you doing still wallowing around in those sins? You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. It's not only the gospel that saved you. It's the gospel that keeps you going. It's the gospel that helps you finish the race. It's the gospel that frees you from those entangling sins. It's the gospel that's your motivation to run after Christ. Don't grow weary and lose heart. You have the gospel. And only a continuous reminder of the gospel of God's grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ keeps us from falling back into those old entangling sins. Only the gospel keeps us running the race that God has set before us. And Christ is our example how to do that. He kept looking forward. We have to keep our eyes on Christ. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because when we have the assurance of total forgiveness through Christ, it's so much easier to strip away those sins and hindrances and weights and leave them behind. But to be honest, that all sounds easier than done. Easier said than done. And that's because we don't often understand who Jesus really is. And that gets another one of these key words in this text. We have to understand that Jesus is our archegos. I put that in there phonetically for you. More for me. But let me explain. The last two weeks we finished Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. Whole list of heroic people there. Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel... And over and over again, it says, remember them. They did this by faith. Remember Abraham. Remember Moses. And now we get to chapter 12, and all of a sudden, we get to Jesus. And only with Jesus does it say, look to Jesus. Remember David. Remember Daniel. Remember them. But look to Jesus. Look back at the beginning of verse 2. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith doesn't say look away to Jesus in general. You know, people will say, I'm facing disaster. I, I'm facing a tragedy. I'm just drowning here. I'm sinking. I'm falling apart. Nothing's going my way. I go to church. I read the Bible. I pray. This text doesn't say look to Jesus any old way. It doesn't say any particular uh, uh, way. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It very specifically says, looking to Jesus, the founder 
and perfecter of our faith. And what he's saying is you have to look at Jesus as this. You must understand him as this. And if you don't understand him as this, as founder and perfecter, you're going to sink. And that's why you'll sink. You can't think of Jesus any old way. He says you have to understand what it means that he's the founder and perfecter. This is really important. Hebrews isn't simply saying you're sinking because you're not looking at Jesus. It says you're not understanding what it means that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith and that he suffered to be that. You have to understand what he did. You have to understand his work. This difficult phrase is really incredible. Every translation you get to, if you got five translations, they'd all be different. The King James says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The New International says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The New Living says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The Revised Standard says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. They're all different. And the reason this verse is so hard is because these words are unbelievably deep and unusual words, and you have to spend a little bit of time thinking about them in order to get them. And here's what they mean. That first word, that key word is the Greek word archegos. The best translation is probably look away to Jesus, our champion. But it's a particular kind of champion. We're not talking about a champion boxer. We're not talking about a champion football player. Because this word, archegos, think about it. That's how you pronounce it in Greek. But it's actually the word arch-ego. If you break it down, arch-ego. Look to Jesus, your arch-ego. Now, in old Greek and Roman myths, the champion's a very specific person. He's your arch-ego. He's a man of great power who would stand in and fight for you. A person could stand in for you as your champion in two different ways. Imagine there's some great villain, some great giant, some great warrior, and he's taking people hostage. And these people are powerless before this great villain. And so Hercules or somebody like that stands forth as the champion. There's two ways that a man could be an arch-ego in those Greek and Roman myths. The first way is he could stand in and he could take all the arrows and all the darts and take the poison, you might say, of the great dragon or whoever the villain was, enabling the hostages to survive and escape. In other words, he'd be the arch-ego, the substitute who would stand in their place, taking all the fiery darts, all the poison, all the fury of the great villain would come down on him instead of on them, and then they'd be free. The second way a champion could stand forth is he could challenge the great villain to mortal combat. It wasn't a video game. In that sense, the champions in the place of the hostages the champion has this great power. He has great muscles. He has great courage. And if he lost, they lost. But if he triumphs over the great villain, they triumph. Yes, they, they would triumph over the great dragon, over the great villain, over the great behemoth, whatever. You're a hostage and you're a 90-pound weakling. You still triumph. Why? Because your champion has. 
He's your arch ego. He stands in for you. You're victorious, not in yourself, but in your champion. And the Bible says that's what Jesus is to you. Say, okay, well, there's two ways. Which way is Jesus? Both ways. He takes the punishment and defeats the enemy. On the cross, he stood in. He took the punishment we deserve, all the poison, all the wrath, all the anger, all the punishments, all the death, all the hell that should have fallen into our hearts. But because we're sinners, all of that fell into his heart. There's none left for us. He's our arch ego. He's our substitute, our champion if you're united to him by faith. Not only that, he came and lived a perfect life. In other words, he stood forth against all the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He did everything we're supposed to do. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. We go out and we say, well, we should do that. I should love God. I should love my neighbor. But we go under. We can't face the temptations. We can't face the pressures. The world, the flesh, and the devil are too much. They defeat us, but not our champion. When you believe in Jesus, his righteousness becomes yours. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, which means God gives you, if you're a Christian, all the love and honor that he would give to his son. He loves you just as much as if you had done all those wonderful deeds of love and courage yourself. As if you were the one who said, not my will, but thine be done. If you'd lived the incredible record of faithfulness that Jesus did. In other words, if Jesus is your archegos, your arch ego, you're perfect in him. There's no condemnation for you. And that's why Jesus relates to the Christian in an utterly different way than Muhammad relates to the Muslim, or Buddha relates to a Buddhist, or Confucius to a Confucian, or Krishna to a Hindu. Why? Because all those other founders of those other religions, however great and small, are only the founders of their faith. They authored it. They started you out. They said, this is the way to go. Here's how to get to God. Do these things, but you have to finish it. You're essentially on probation. We can get you started, but you have to complete it. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, here's how to get to God. He accomplishes it for you because he's not just your author, he's your finisher. He's your founder and perfecter. He doesn't just put you on probation, he fulfills the probation for you. And if you believe in him, he's put you beyond probation forever. So we say with Romans 8.1, great verse. Therefore, there is now. What? <coughs> it's in your outline. No condemnation. Mm, excuse me. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. But what happens if you don't believe that? If you just quit. Give up. You're not going to grow. 
we can't miss the point that Jesus endured. How do we do that? How do we endure? I think it's actually pretty simple. If you're in trouble, if you're facing difficulties, many of you are, the best thing you can do is obey. Just obey. So what does that mean? What does that look like? <coughs> it means when difficulties come, when suffering comes, you don't give up. You keep praying. You keep reading your Bible. You keep coming to church. You keep being kind to people. You keep repenting of your sins. You keep serving others. You just don't give up. You know, counselors say when you're hit by a crisis, one of the most important things you can do is to maintain the routine. Most people immediately don't do that. Crisis hits and they withdraw. And any good counselor would say, don't withdraw. Just keep doing the regular, ordinary things. And that applies to the Christian life, too. You don't give up. Push back against the pressure. And over time, just like exercise, it will turn you in to someone of compassion and courage and faith in ways that you can't even imagine. You ever talk to somebody and you meet them and you know, they just know Jesus way better than I do. I met this person, and it's clear they just believe more than I do. They have greater faith than I do. Ask them how they got there. They never got there because things just went so well. They always got there because they endured through some crisis, some difficulty, some intense time of suffering, and they came out on the other side. And so now they have this great faith. And we want that great faith. We just don't want to go through what they went through to get it. And Hebrews is saying, there's no shortcuts. He's also saying, difficulties are going to come, suffering's going to come, hard times are going to come. Just keep believing. Persevering faith. Jesus saw the big picture and he endured. He stayed there. He stayed put. He pushed back. He didn't let go of his position. And Hebrews is saying, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus as the arch-ego and achiever of your faith. Look at the big picture and then just obey where you are. And you will not faint and you will not grow weary, but you will come through when you look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes, that we might see our sin, but see our Savior. We need encouragement to live the Christian life, which is so often a long and arduous obedience in the same direction, with the interruptions of trials and tribulations and wandering, and we're prone to wander. So we ask, you would not only guard our hearts, but you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, energize us, strengthen us, so that we might finish the race. Help us to be encouraged in living the Christian life. Help us right now, today, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and drive these truths deep into our hearts, 
and make our hearts believe, no matter what is going on in our lives, that Jesus is better. Amen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God bless you. We'll see you this afternoon.